Occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Okay, welcome to the sixth encounter of the Bullshit Artists. I'm Rory Verado here with Jack Crittenden. What's up, Jack? Hi, Rory. The sixth what? Encounter. Of what? Of what? <laughs> you going senile? What's this? What are we doing? <laughs> Bullshitting. Don't you oh, remember? Oh, right. Right. I, yeah. I, I nearly forgot. <laughs> well, let's jog your, jog your memory a little. <laughs> we were uh, talking last time about a whole bunch of different shit. And um, one of the things that struck me and that I wanted to pick up with you on, I still have some comments about authority and, and some things I wanted to explore there with you. Maybe we'll come to that. Maybe we won't. But I had, you were asking me about my views on revolution. I was giving you a few different takes on that and the sort of the two streams that I see between like a conventional sort of possibly violent Marxist revolution political revolution on the one hand, and then this sort of educational revolution uh, on the other hand. And I remember making a comment about my view that revolution, political revolution is urgently necessary and justified or justifiable in light of the impending climate catastrophe in particular, which we might use something like a necessity argument to support. So I had mentioned that there were um, activists uh, who had been monkey wrenching pipelines, for example, and who argued in court, I'm not sure if it was successful <laughs> or if it has ever been successful, um, but multiple people have made this type of argument that uh, they were forced to break the law uh, as out of necessity, out of sheer sort of existential necessity. So uh, what do you think of that off the top of your head? Does that seem like it could be a coherent argument to make to you, I guess, a necessity argument for revolution? If you are denied your basic needs, that put you in or under existential threat. So you don't have adequate food or water or shelter or clothing. It seems to me that pushes you into an arena in which one logical possibility is theft, robbery, burglary, lawbreaking. That seems to me to be a logical position to hold. And a society that puts people in that position is a, is a society that's dysfunctional. Okay, now multiply that by thousands and, and probably millions of people who are in that, that existential problem. 
suddenly lawbreaking does not seem to be a bad option. In fact, it seems to be maybe the only option. Okay, if you extrapolate then to the notion of, if you can conceive of that as revolution, that would be interesting. But it strikes me that at that, at that moment in what I've described, it's just chaos. Mm. And the fear is in a culture like ours that's steeped in, if not based on individualism, people will have a hard time coming together in some coherent way to do something logical and revolutionary. In other right. words, my, my concern is that you get to the point where it, it looks as if that kind of action is a logical outcome of the circumstances under which you find yourself. You're not going to have organized rebellion or revolution. You're going to have chaos, uh, anarchy in the worst understanding of the term. So how is it going to be revolutionary? I mean, we, I mean we, he, he, here's, here's where we are. Here's where I am. Mm. You, you are almost giving Marx's understanding of revolution. Because for him, the key element is when the proletariat let's call it for the sake of our listeners and viewers, the working class understands the roots of their oppression, steps out of what Marx calls false consciousness, realizes the, the gravity of the situation they're in and the root causes of that situation, and then understands that what needs to be done is some kind of, of galvanizing of the working class, the proletariat, in some kind of revolutionary action. But they have to be at the level of consciousness where they understand what's happened and why it's happened. And therefore, what will follow from the action, the revolutionary action. Okay, are you suggesting that in the necessity argument for revolution, you see something like that occurring? I So I would say I see a possibility for something like that. I think I'm inclined to agree with you that in point of fact uh you know it's a 99% chance or whatever that it, it that um any kind of action will be disorganized and chaotic and probably completely uncoordinated so it would just be uh you know maybe mass looting we could think of something like this you know as opposed to some kind of like disciplined uh well organized programmatic project uh, of revolution. But at the same time, I do think that those conditions, they create the opportunity for some, at least somebody to come along amidst the chaos with a plan and start doing shit. And maybe people start doing shit with him or her, right? <laughs> That's yeah. basically what I see as a possibility. Cause like, you know, think of the Cuban, like Cuban revolution, it was Fidel Castro and like 50 other dudes, you know, now granted that, that doesn't uh, carry over to contemporary United States, but you don't necessarily need to have a huge, uh, huge group of people that has a 
perfectly well thought out plan ahead of time in order to implement this kind of change. My quick response to that is, well, you better. <laughs> because yeah. uh, I, I don't know that I would look to the Cuban revolution. I think I would look to the Russian revolution and, and, and here's why. Mm. This, the Russians suffered a defeat in 1905 at the hands of the, uh, was the Sino-Soviet, no, it wasn't called the Sino-Soviet. Uh, I think it was, wasn't it? Or maybe that well, was a different time. Yeah, but there was a, a war with China, wasn't it? Yeah, there was a war with China. Uh, anyway, there was a war that the Russians were engaged in. And at that moment, the they, I don't think they were called the Bolsheviks at that point. Maybe they were decided, oh, this is the time for the uprising. Well, they were just brutally crushed. Right. Right. And so that's when Lenin goes into hiding. He leaves leaves Russia and then returns to the, the uh, what's the name of that famous book by Edmund Wilson? The, oh, oh, Return no. to the Finland Station. <clears throat> so he returns to the Finland Station in whatever it is, 1915, 1917, whatever the revolution is, I can't remember, I'm old. <laughs> 17, Not old enough to remember <laughs> the revolution, but old enough to have forgotten. But anyway, my point is that in the meantime, when he was in exile, he ran a movement in exile where he would write dozens and dozens of letters a day to prominent members in, uh, for the sake of, of uh, convenience, we'll call it the Bolshevik movement, who, as you may recall, had taken positions in the, the Soviets, which were these spontaneous uh, organizations in factories, schools, even army barracks, where they talked about revolutionary ideas, about what the Bolsheviks represented, what kind of a vision they had for creating a new society. So Lenin is keeping himself in a position of leadership, but he's doing it by sending these dozens and dozens of letters a day that he's writing to the leaders of these local Soviets. And these are people who have sacrificed their lives. They're members of the Bolshevik party. And they said, yes, I will move out to some rural farm community where there's nothing going on. I will give up my job as a musician uh, playing in the orchestra or as a teacher, and I will go sacrifice my life for the sake of the movement. Right? The, the reason I point that out is that when the revolution occurs in 1917, it's the Bolsheviks storming the Winter Palace. They had like 12 people, right. as you were saying, 50 people. And there was like one shot fired and one person hurt. Somebody fell down right. and, and, and sprained their ankle. <laughs> they were, it, that, that was the Russian Revolution. You know, the aftermath, of course, is more severe. But my point is that there was incredible organization among the Bolsheviks before the revolution occurred. Mm. And that's what I would point you to, particularly you and the Extinction Rebellion movement, as a way of saying, look, this is this is happening. This is coming. It may come a lot faster than we thought because of how screwed up the governments are around the world. The pandemic has pointed out how fragile democracy is and how just inept most many of our governments are around the world. Right? So now is the time to really get moving on this and start to create cells 
of people who have a common vision and can work together to to propagate that vision first you've got to first you've got to get organized on what the vision is and how best to get the message out what the story is you need to tell about where we are how we got here where we are and where we want to go get that story straight and and get it out there so that when things get bad there will be a movement that people can rely upon where people in positions of influence like you can step forward Mm. that it's already established, right? It's already organized and going. Otherwise, it is going to be uh, just chaos and anarchy and wretched. <laughs> I, yeah, I, th- I agree with you on that point. And I mean, that, that was and maybe still is the logic of Extinction Rebellion, um, you know, to have to, to work towards building parallel institutions, to be decentralized and to have networks of interlinked cells that are only, um, you know, that are autonomous and also to be prefigurative, right? To um, try to start creating the institutions uh, that will sort of bloom out of the corpse of the old world. But, yeah, right. you know, right. that... Uh, has had minimal success because especially in the United States, because of how uh, the movement has been thwarted. And in fact, uh, one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion was just arrested in, I think the UK yesterday, maybe um, for, I forget what the charges are, but she was coordinating some kind of debt strike basically against HSBC and other banks, kind of like pressuring them to divest kind of thing. I can't, I haven't looked at all the details, but at any rate, she was arrested and whatever charges she faces are, are pretty heavy, uh, like yeah. year, mandatory years in prison. And they've already gone after the other co-founder, Roger Hallam. Um, I, I, he's had multiple incidents, but the one that I remember is that he was supposed to come do a book reading or something with Chris Hedges like a year or two ago. Uh, this was before the pandemic, so it must have been two years ago. And he was stopped and refused entry uh, or like what, denied a visa, I guess, to the United States. So point being is that the, it's already the, the, the movement has already been kneecapped and splintered and all these types of things. So I really have no faith in or, or even any involvement in the Extinction Rebellion movement at this point. It was the right message. It's the right name and all those types of things. Um, but it's, it's over. However, the, the, the general like theoretical conversation that we're having is still, still has merit, I think. And I, I guess I, I might offer the possibility that, Whereas in, you know, pre-industrialized or just barely beginning to industrialize Russia in 1917, that level of local coordination proceeding and uh, dovetailing with the revolution itself was necessary to the success if we want to call it a success of the revolution, right? Whereas I wonder if now circumstances are substantially different 
including especially with the existence of the internet and the reduction, for example, in lag time between communications, right? Like Lenin wouldn't have to be writing handwriting letters or whatever, 50 a day. He could make one tweet or something and everybody, boom, would be have their marching orders, you know, instantly. Um, so it sounds kind of trite, but like I'm serious in that, that I think, among other things, technological advancements have perhaps perhaps changed the logic of a possible revolution such that it could sort of snap into a, a new order could snap into place much more quickly, perhaps simply by people seeing it online, seeing something happening and saying, yep, that's it. You know, I'm with them or whatever. Like, I think we see it already with the way that the right wing has weaponized Think about something like QAnon. I've been watching the QAnon documentary on HBO. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with I the am. movement, but man, like the- down, What's it called? Down the hole or yeah, the rabbit some, hole or something like that? Something like that, down the hole. And it does yeah. have like a rabbit and a logo or something. It's, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's really well-made, like uh, um, very impressively well-made. Um, but point being is just like that shows the way that- uh, sort of decentralized manipulation, you know, in a negative sense of people can be done by, you know, one moron making text posts on an anonymous message board, you know, or more likely, I think, and, and having seen the documentary, uh, I think it's a small group of people doing the QAnon posting um, but nevertheless, you know, poorly organized and whatever, and it still has grown, it still has grown into something substantial. Yeah. So I don't know. What do you think of that? Uh, I have several comments about that. Some of them you're not going to like. <laughs> That's okay. I, I think uh, Instinction Rebellion made a mistake Many. by... maybe focusing too much on the performance, on the idea of strikes, on the idea of shutting things down, on the idea of uh, engaging in theatrics, not unlike Abby Hoffman and the yuppies, but, but he had behind him SDS and some other serious anti-war movement. Uh, so I think it blended and allowed allow the movement to focus. Maybe the only time they were ever really united was when they were in court right after Chicago in 68. Yeah, I watched but, that movie adaptation. I thought it was pretty, pretty good. Yeah, it's okay. But I mean, it's really, you miss, you, you miss the, the energy that, that occurred. I mean, how disruptive and crazy it was. You get a sense of it, but you don't, you don't have the days and days and days of, of madness that was going on there now. And, and Hoffman yeah. was just driven to, to extremes. Um, but my, my point is that I, I don't want to lose what I think is the, the knot in my thread. And that is the, the, I, the importance of having the story having the message. I mean, QAnon has a story. It's preposterous, right. but it's a story that resonated for, for the reasons that it uh, could blend all of these prejudices. 
the people who are moved by it hate the Democrats. They hate Hillary Clinton. They're jealous of the Hollywood celebrities. They can bring them down by saying that they are pedophiles who drink the blood of children, uh, all of the awful, crazy things. But somehow it, it allows them to to foist onto uh, those crowds this preposterous narrative, but it resonates. So my, my point is that you need to get the message clear on where we've been, where we are, and what's coming. Mm. Uh, so I think that's the key. And, and to go to your point about the internet, you're absolutely right. The internet has allowed you to operate with independent cells in a way that, uh, that the Bolsheviks could and couldn't do, right? So the Soviets, these spontaneous organizations were, were local and independent but they were networked together through Lenin and the, and the leadership of the Bolsheviks. Now I'm gonna introduce something else I don't think you're gonna like, and that is the notion of hierarchy. <laughs> Maybe, be there can be justified hierarchy. Yeah, we've talked about that, the different yeah. kinds of hierarchy. But so in this case, I think one of the failures of the Occupy Wall Street movement was that it was too diffuse. There wasn't any leadership. So all of these occupations were occurring independent of the others. And now there may have been, uh, and what connected them was media coverage. That's insufficient, right? You, you, need, you need leadership and you need a message. Uh, yes, it's the 99%, you know, we're sick of it, whatever. Uh, but you need to know, okay, why are we doing it? What effect do we want? Where are we headed? I think what's coming is going to be so catastrophic that people need to be prepared, but they need to be prepared not for how shitty it's going to be, which is what we've talked about for three or four encounters, right. maybe all of the encounters, right. but what can we do in preparation? Right? What, what, what is something that we can do? So I don't know what the message is you want to get out there. I don't know. And again, as we talked last encounter, what the vision is you want to propose, mm. but I think it's got to be done. And you got to see how resonant it is with people. Uh, I, I just don't see any other. Oh, well, I see one other way around the chaos. Mm. Are you familiar with Erica Chenoweth? Yes. And XR has relied on her research a little bit in promoting its message okay. uh, about, you know, you only need supposedly like three and a half percent of the population or something. Right. Be on board um, in order to get a revolution going. But but, there have but, also been some criticisms that I think are valid of that claim. Well, let, let's operate with it because I don't know what the criticisms are. I know she's got some, some data mm -hmm. and she's has relied upon it, but let's assume that it works in part. Again, you can get people in the streets if they know why they're out there. I mean, the, I think one of the problems with black lives matter is that people knew why they were out there. You know, all sports shut down started with the NBA, went to the, went to every major sport. They shut down because of the George Floyd murder. Mm -hmm. And this was occurring during a pandemic when people knew it was dangerous to be in the street. Well, where are they now? There's no, there's no, there's no sustaining of, of the movement because I don't think there's a sustaining of the message. Uh, yes. Chavin. Chavin. Chauvin? Chauvin is found I, guilty. I always think of chauvinist, right? He's got to be. <laughs> yeah. 
That's yeah. a good one. Chauvin is found guilty. And it's and you can just get the sense that there are people, you know, going, all right, right. that's done. <laughs> right. Okay. Nothing to see here. Yeah, but we but again, I think I think it's crucial to get the story, the story that pushes the message of where we've been, where we are, where we're going. I, and I think that requires leadership. Yeah. Now, how the leadership is is rotated, which I think would be crucial, so it doesn't end, end up like SDS, which starts with all the right values and just turns to shit. I think it uh, you you need to work that out. How 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 hierarchy is overcome, not in its structure, but in its its faces, something like that. I, mm. I I don't I don't know. I just my concern, Rory, is that the talk of revolution won't get us where I think you need to go. And I say you because I'm going to be dead. So it doesn't matter to me. Um, well, it does matter to me because I have children and grandchildren. So a grandchild. So that's important. But I just think it, it, it needs to be, the message needs to be clear uh, and, and perpetuated. Mm. You know, so, you, so you don't lose energy. So the, the movement doesn't, doesn't fade out. But I don't. So two two of the founders of Extinction Rebellion were shut down in various ways. Well, I think if you are promoting a message and doing it through uh, self-sustaining, self-motivated, almost autonomous cells, who are sharing the same message, it's going to be tough for the federal government. Or local governments to shut you down because it'll be in violation of the constitution. Yes, they don't care about that initially, <laughs> but there'll be lawsuits and there'll be plenty of people, the ACLU, ACLU included, who will step up and say, yeah, I'll defend you. You have a right to free speech. You have a right to assemble. You have a right to free press. Yeah. 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 It's, it's hard to chop the head off the snake, or if you do, that doesn't necessarily kill this particular snake. It's more like a hydra or whatever. But uh, you need the heads. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, do. Medusa, Medusa had one head with multiple snakes coming out of it. You can chop off all the <laughs> snakes you want, but you need a head. Yeah, I agree that that has been one of my critiques of XR from within as well. Um, although I gave up on really trying to make this argument to people pretty early on, which was there was this sense that uh, the movement was supposed to be quote unquote leaderless uh, or leaderful not leaderless. Okay. So, but you're not supposed to have a single leader. Everyone's a leader, uh, but it's also not leaderless. Okay. Well, that sounds great. And, you know, it's, uh, support sort of a democratic sentiment and I'm all for that, but, um, it, you know, arguably, and I think the point you're kind of making is like leaders, individual leaders can be sort of focal points, can galvanize the movement, can, give direction when direction is needed. There was this sort of sense that any direction is inherently, uh, you know, oppressive. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just like, well, okay. <laughs> and you know, then I as I started doing media stuff and, and getting some attention through that people, the knives really came out. Right. And we're like, well, who's this white guy, you know, uh, going acting like he's in charge I'm like never have i acted that way but you know maybe someone should be <laughs> yeah someone should be you know leaderful 
Well, then you end up with leader full of shit. Yeah, uh, yeah pretty much. And infighting is what, what ended up happening. All this infighting and dissent and just kind of fizzled out, you know. Well, uh, I'm going to go back to where we were in the last encounter toward the end where I, I pushed you on, and I think you agreed on the value of political theory because it provides, you know, theory means uh, spectate or vision. And I think that's key. I think you need a vision of where you want to go and what it's going to look like. Uh, so for me, I wouldn't care if you have th the idea that there's anyone who lays out a direction is somehow thwarting the movement. That sounds bizarre, if not crazy to me. Yeah. Um, but, but it seems to me if you, if you have a message, you have a story, and it points through where we are to where you want to be and what that looks like, then allow all the splinter groups you want to occur. People want to step up and say, no, that's not the way we want to go. We want to do why. Okay. Uh, or no, we don't like the vision. F fine. Go, go off and do, do something else on your own. Right. But if you're, if you are united on what the vision is of how society can be organized locally, regionally, globally, then that's what you aim for. And you say, okay, now it's a matter of how do we, how do we get there? Knowing what's coming, how do we get there? So uh, I just wrote to our mutual friend, Jenny Reich. Oh, good. Uh, who, unlike you, remembered my birthday and <laughs> sent me a happy birthday greeting. Eh, she was always a suck up. <laughs> <laughs> now nah, she was just a better just person than you, Rory, to be honest. <laughs> Much better. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote to her and I said, uh, you know, one of the things I've been thinking of, maybe it's a thread that runs throughout my entire life. In fact, I think it is, uh, is the importance of micro intentional communities yeah. where you could attempt to, to miniaturize the culture, the best aspects of culture. Uh, locally, while you look for networks of such communities regionally and globally. Mm -hmm. right. So for me, the operating image is Mondragon, which you're familiar with, uh, right. and maybe our viewers and listeners aren't. Mondragon is a section uh, in the Catalan, Catalonia, the Catalan sect, shit. <laughs> so somewhere Mondragon, in Spain. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's not Spain, which is the crucial well, element. Oh, true, true, true. It, true it's true. Yeah. Catalonia, which considers itself it's a, a Basque region, which wants to be independent of Spain. Right. But Mondragon was a place, as I understand it, and a, a Catholic priest. At, this was after the Spanish Civil War. A Catholic priest decided to organize businesses within the town and create these collectives, these cooperatives, what we would call food co-ops or book co-ops or whatever people have. And it is now, I think it now uh, employs something like 275,000 people. It is uh, still tries to be true to its founding documents and its vision, but it's gotten into this a little bit of trying to compete globally for business. So it's, I think, caused a little bit of concern. But Mondragon is, for me, 
sort of the, uh, I don't want to call it the linchpin, that's not quite right. It is a, uh, it's sort of a model of what I have in mind, that nobody is trying to then say, let's produce thousands and thousands of mudragons across the country, across the world. You could do it, but they're not going to look the same. That's fine. That's not a problem. But is the vision the same of having workers own and control uh, where they work, that teachers and maybe even students run the schools and the hospitals are run by staff and not by corporate entities. I think that's sort of a model for what I'm thinking about. Uh, so it, so I'm, not, I'm not trying to foist this on you. I'm just, just, just saying, I think the key for me is, ha is having the vision of what you want to see. So even when things begin going to shit, the movement begins falling apart, begins fraying at the edges, that's not so much of a concern as as making sure that the move that, that the the vision still holds that it still makes sense if it stops making sense okay then you've got to adjust uh i, I feel like i'm lecturing now sorry <laughs> oh, first time ever <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i i mean i agree with you about mondragon like and richard wolf the socialist economist um marxist economist always points to that example. I think I first heard about Mondragon from Simone actually back in the day uh, when I was doing my master's. Um, and I mentioned to our viewers and listeners who that is. Oh yeah. Sorry. Avital Simone. She's a political theorist at Arizona state university where Jack taught and where I got my master's degree and undergraduate degree. Um, and well, I was going to make a side point about her, but it's unnecessary. Uh, but Mondragon as an example about or for um, a new type of organization uh, I'm on board with, but were you suggesting that that, that extinction rebellion or a comparable movement should model itself off of something like Mondragon or where were you going with that? I guess, or maybe so I what, missed that connection. What I, what I was saying is that for me, uh, I'm working with, this is a long-term project. Well, I've been at it for a while, uh, but you know how things go, you get diverted. Yeah. So you move on to a different project and then that leads to a different project. So you never maybe get back to the, the main line. Mm -hmm. But for me, this has been, as I said, a thread throughout most of my adult life, thinking about uh, the value of local, what I'm calling intentional, uh, intentional micro communities, which are not, which are not to be confused with what occurred in the sixties and seventies with this outbreak of intentional communities by back to nature hippies, <laughs> almost all of which fell apart. There are a couple that still exist mm. uh, that are worth looking into because why did they exist and others didn't? Um, but most of them had, had faulty visions of why they were doing what they were doing and how they were gonna do it. You know, lots of people who go to work the land suddenly realize that that's hard fucking work. Yeah. And yeah. we don't know anything about working the land. We have a lot to learn and, oh, I don't wanna do that. Fuck it, that's hard. That, that isn't everybody, but that, that destroyed a lot, of, a lot of communities. And then there were, you know, drug problems. People got, <laughs> into the 
cosmic bullshit and forgot what was what was happening right in front of them. Anyway, my point is that there was something there about trying to establish the kind of community that would be sustainable and also value laden. Mm. And that's why I said miniaturize the culture. So you try to bring in the cultural elements that are enriching for people, right? So it isn't, uh, you know, we do yoga here and anything else, fuck you, we don't do that. But you, you, try, you try to amalgamize what you think are the, the high value activities of a culture. And I use Modragon as an example of how you can do it in economics, right? How you can run businesses that way. And they're cooperatives, as you know, across, across this country and around the world. Mm. Uh, so, okay, that may take care of the economics, but there are other things going on. The social interactions, uh, the cultural groupings, uh, the educational uh, system. What does that look like? So that's what I'm saying. I think all of that is part of the vision now, that, that's for me. I mean, you may have a very different vision. Maybe it is urban-oriented, not in this direction at all, or maybe it's I, whatever it would be. Um, I just think that the having the vision is the key element because that is what you can adhere to and can sustain you as groups, groups splinter and develop their own hydra-headed view of things. You know, can they fit in with this vision? Maybe they have a different way of going about it. They believe in the nonviolent Chenoworthian, Chenoworthian, whatever it is, uh, vision of how to attain, attain this. And you have a, a different view. It, that doesn't matter. The question is, can will we come together in some kind of united front? Mm. And this is the point of, I was making about trying to link in a network these different kinds of communities. But it starts with actually you know, having a community that I, exists where I would say, okay, here, here is one that we're trying to get going somewhere that people can look to, like Mondragon. That was my point about Mondragon. You can look to that and say, this exists. It's existed for 70 years. Well, not quite that. Well, 70 years is still functioning and, and even thriving. Mm. Yeah, I think so. And now I'm thinking about a d distinction that makes sense to me in my head and let's see if it works when I say it, but like the, you had mentioned like sort of the shortcomings of Occupy, uh, which I think many of which were shared by Extinction Rebellion and a lot of similar uh, types of movements, including, uh, you know, the BLM protests, which is that they seem to have a shared conception and maybe vision of um, an action to be taken in the present or a process to be undertaken in the present or near future. So with BLM, it was marching in the street immediately um, and demanding certain uh, changes, even um, up to the abolition of the police. Uh, with Extinction Rebellion, the, the furthest goal, because there was a pretty well-articulated um, sort of story um, but the furthest goal that was adopted was basically we want to create parallel institutions that we're going to call citizens assemblies that are com composed by sortition of average people, ordinary people, who will then in turn make decisions about what should be done 
that will be binding upon existing state apparatuses. Now, to me, that was never going to work. You, the, the, the state is never going to be bound by a parallel institution. Uh, you could try to replace the state or you know, supplant the state or just take your own actions through the parallel institution. But the idea that the government's going to obey a non-government entity is to misunderstand that governments rest on a monopoly of violence and will will act violently to maintain their you know sovereignty anyway um but what uh, what i'm hearing you're suggesting and what i think makes sense to me is that either in addition to or in place of this sort of immediate and process oriented vision there needs to be something like a teleological vision like like an end like a goal and a and as you said a model like mondragon that we could look at and say this is it this is the end point that we are striving towards towards and what we want to construct yeah right and we're not going to mince words and be like well no we'll we'll make up our minds along the way like no this is fucking it you know, <laughs> this, the, this is our game plan and our blueprint. And that, I think, was sorely lacking in XR. And I think in many of the, the recent sort of decentralized, vaguely anti-establishment grassroots movements that have occurred here and around the world. Yeah. For you... There may already be, I don't want to call it a blueprint, but let's call it a framework. Last encounter, you talked about creating uh, multiple Socrateses. Right. Well, that has to be done, at least in your mind, somewhere mm. and in some fashion. And it may be that you imagine what you, you could do. I, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be speaking for you. Mm. I'm just taking an idea that you expressed last encounter and I'm kind of running with it, spinning with it. Uh, you could say it, it, it begins with the founding of a school, either a school I take over or, or a school <laughs> that I start. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you start, I mean, you might say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go the conventional way here. I'm gonna get into this school I'm going to work my way up the administration. I'm a gum principal and I'm going to pull the rug out from under the place. Uh, and I'll either be, uh, have a host of people behind me who will encourage me to do it. Hopefully they're the trustees or the school board or I'll be fired. Okay. Or you find a group of like-minded people who want to start a school hmm. and you begin, you begin putting into effect the kinds of educational uh, techniques, activities, philosophies that you think are crucial. And then you figure out, okay, how can we not just perpetuate the school, but propagate? And you have teachers and those teachers maybe go out and found found a different school or, or go the conventional route and take over a school. In other words, those are your Socrates. They, they have seen the vision. They've seen the practices. They go out and they do it mm. and you begin to see this multiplying. Okay. That's, that's a vision yeah. of what you want. Yeah. It isn't a vision of social uh, structure, social order, 
social composition. It's smaller than that. I mean, that isn't an intentional community, but it is a microcosm of society right there. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to produce the kinds of citizens for the society you want to see through your school. These are the multiple, the multitude of Socrateses. Yes. Uh, so you're absolutely right. The, the idea of a parallel political structure is just doomed from the start. It's just not going to work. No, it just gets squashed, especially yeah. in today's or, world. Or or ignored. It'll just right. be, which is worse than being squashed. They squash you to get some publicity. Yes. You know? uh, there'd be some broken eggs there. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. You're you. you it's it's just it's not going to work. I, uh, I think it starts with the vision, and you work you work backwards from that. Maybe that's wrong. I but I just don't see that that starting with the let's say the Occupy movement. Let's occupy, and and thereby protest. Was ever going to work? Where, where were you headed with this? What what did you what did they think would happen? Right. I just don't know. Or maybe it was, well, we know that the police will come. We will be brutalized. And in being brutalized, we will, we will draw attention to our plight and that will galvanize the world around us. Uh, no, that didn't happen. I would be hard pressed to see how it would happen. So anyway, for me, it's the, it's the vision. So the, the, this idea about the intentional micro communities, that, that may not be your view. Your view, I think mm-hmm. is, is focused on schools and what you can do with them. I like that. I mean, as I've told, as I've said to you in the past and on this podcast, for me, you want an environment, for me, you want an environment in which the school is the community and the community is the school. The two are inseparable, right? So there are all kinds of skills being learned and shared, not by teachers who are called teachers and go to a classroom, but they're they're all over the community and they come in and they teach a skill, some life skill, some technical skill. Mm. And the kids go out in the community and learn about how people live and how they function and what you need to, need to learn. If I'm stuck in, in a community when the world is collapsing, society has malfunctioned, the chaos is reigning, I, I'm going to be dead pretty quickly. <laughs> Because I have no skills. Very few of us do. (laughs) Yeah. Well, then we're in trouble. Then you need somebody like my brother-in-law who is multiple, has multiple skills, can build anything, kill anything, cook anything. (laughs) You know, he's, he's going to survive. He's going to be fine. I'm going to be, you know, hanging on his, his belt going, bring me along. (laughs) Yes. But of course, even, even folks like that, um, you know, this is, uh, there's the whole like prepper movement, not saying your brother-in-law is one, although maybe he is, I don't know, but there's the idea that people are anticipating this and they're going to try and, uh, you know, hoard supplies, including especially weapons and create an impenetrable compound so that they and their family or small community can be safe. You know, billionaires are doing it now. The whole billionaire bunker phenomenon yeah. has been public for at least five years. They're popular in New Zealand, uh, particularly because of its uh, presumed uh, insulation from climate change. Um, you, you know, one of the most popular 
well, of course, a place like New Zealand for the, the super rich. Right. One of the most popular uh, is the converted nuclear weapons, nuclear right. rocket silos, yep. uh, which people have refurbished with, you know, swimming pools and gyms and these, these incredibly opulent apartments. Yep, I've seen and, them. And my thought always is, okay, rich person, things are so bad that you now recognize we have to retreat to the bunker, to the silo. And you say to your private plane, jet plane pilot, fly me to Nebraska. And he goes, are we going with you into the silo? Because if we are, hang on, let me get my family. And if we aren't, fuck, fuck you. you, get there yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, yes. This, this is not, it's not going to go well. Yeah, no. but they, it's the same concept, right? So they have the armed guards out there protecting the silo. And those people are saying, what am I doing out here? Yeah, I got the gun. <laughs> <laughs> when you're down there in the bunker. I just watched, uh, have you ever seen, you probably have the Dirty Dozen old movie with. Uh, sure. Yeah, I just watched that. Lee Marvin, the, Jim Brown. Oh, killer, killer cast. Yeah. Donald Sutherland. Yeah. I just watched that for the Kelly first Savalas. time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other day. And I, I had been wanting to watch it for many years um, because of its reputation and because I was exposed to those kinds of movies as a young kid. My grandfather used to watch all that kind of shit uh, and also like Westerns and things. So I've always liked that stuff. But anyway, it, it just reminded me, you may remember the one of the final scenes. They finally put, is it Jim, Jim Brown, right? The, the black guy, the football player. Yeah they finally yeah. put his skills to use where he has to drop grenades down. Yeah, he's into running, the bunkers. <laughs> yeah. running down, he's running in a straight line yeah, to drop grenades down the chutes. Yes. To the uh, Nazis that they've corralled down right. into these bunkers. And then of course he's unceremoniously gunned down after he completes his rushing yards, you know? Um, <laughs> but I just, it, th that's the same thing. Like, you know, these guards or whatever, why would they not at least threaten to do that in order to get down into the bunker or to just to take over the bunkers so they have more supplies for themselves and don't have to deal with these rich assholes. Yeah. Same thing applies to these uh, the Mars colonies that they're proposing. First of all, no human is ever going to set on foot on Mars, in my opinion. It's certainly not within the next 10 years. But even if they do, it's going to be a, an absolute fucking catastrophe, I think. And even Elon Musk said, I think recently, like there will be hundreds of you know, casualties, the first thousand people to go to Mars will all die or something. Like, oh, I'm sure people well, are lining up. You're, 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 they're simply going to be transporting from Earth to the moon or Mars or asteroid X-21, whatever the hell it is. Right. The value system that, that forced people to want to leave the planet. We have fucked up the planet. Yes. We have done it. Those values aren't going to disappear when you get to Mars. You're not going no. to suddenly become a compassionate person. Right. You're going to be the same asshole you were on Earth. And they may be heightened, those problems. And Probably will worse. be heightened. People will be stressed and uh, confused. They're in a strange place. No hope yeah, of returning to you, Earth. Where you can't breathe the air. Right. There's no <laughs> punishment, basically. Uh, uh, you know, there's no authority. Yeah. So... Yeah, but it's the worst. It's the worst possible 
mindset, it seems to me, yes. to say, you know what? I'm not willing to expend really any energy fixing the problems on earth. Let's figure out where we can go and bring our screwed up value system to destroy another civilization, civilization, air quotes, right? Uh, somewhere else. It, it's how, how that's going to function. I have, well, no idea. And actually it, I'm with you. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I don't care. And I don't think it will happen. Uh, Do you see the movie? Have you seen the movie Interstellar? Uh, yeah, of course. It's been a few years, but yeah. Uh, that yeah, it's a fantastic movie. The most chilling scene, maybe of well, that movie for sure, and maybe of lots of movies. I was going to say any every any movie I've ever seen. The most chilling scene. I don't know that I can say that, but it's the scene where they've gone to the. I think it's the edge of the black hole, uh-huh. and they come back to the spaceship. And they get on and they said, oh, God, sorry, we were gone an extra half hour. Oh, yeah. And he said, yeah, well, that half hour was 35 years for right. me. And I thought, oh, my God, that's just it, it was just bone chilling for me. Yes. Can you imagine the anxiety you would feel knowing that every minute is an is a year, you know? Yeah. Every yes. minute that's passing and you, and you just, you know, drop something that's going to take you five minutes to to pick up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, that's yeah, so you've lost, years. you've lost and you've got to find it. Oh my God. Yeah. That yes. for me was yeah bone chilling. Anyway. So somehow we've gotten into the uh, <laughs> interplanetary vision. Yeah. This is the film criticism portion of the podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but it's my fault for bringing in the dirty dozen, but that image was just so perfect. And uh, well, you know what I thought of? What I thought of Dr. Strangelove. Uh, I still have not and, seen that much oh to my, my shame. Oh my God, Rory. I know. You, I know. You, what, you have to put that at the top of the list and I don't it, care what you have to spend to see it. <laughs> it's going there. But it really the, is. It, well, so I'm going to spoil this in part for you. First of all, <laughs> let me just say, uh, unfortunately for many of my students, I taught this film in a class and forced on them my interpretation of course of the film of course i did which i think um others shared it's not unique to me but it, it, i just find it very powerful but anyway at the end of it when they decided that the nuclear exchange was inevitable that there was going to be a full-scale nuclear war because russia had the doomsday machine it's a hilarious movie it doesn't, doesn't sound hilarious but it, it's actually very funny movie. I've seen enough clips to know and, you know, read about it and, and, and are familiar with its reputation. I know it's hilarious. Yeah, it is great. So anyway, and Peter, Peter Sellers, like Peter Sellers, on. who plays at least two, maybe three roles. I think yeah, three roles uh, is Dr. Strangelove. And at the end of the movie, he's saying the plan is that they will take all of the important governmental leaders with plenty of concubines not unlike the dynasties in china or the families in the middle east right. plenty of concubines for the men to to reproduce and they'll go into these mine shafts deep into the in the in the ground where they will live awaiting the clearing of radiation the end of nuclear winter so that they can then come out and with all their offspring and create a new civilization uh, that's what i Great thought plan. of <laughs> you were talking about it. Yeah, there's the grand plan. Yeah, that's so uh, we'll 
we'll have, uh, you know, uh, a reboot of humanity with Jeff Bezos as the progenitor, I guess, you know? Yeah, well, they'll be then competing um, minds, right? True. Uh, minds and minds, M-I-N-E <laughs> and M-I-N-D. Right. Uh, because they'll be in their own mine shafts over here and bunkers over here and silos over here and reinforced communities over here. And then we'll see, then the world will, will simply redound to what it was before. Again, the value systems won't change that, that I, I still think is, you know, part of the vision Yeah. and the core part of how do you educate for that, which is your dilemma. Yeah. Not dilemma, but your mission, your mission, right. Rory, should you <laughs> accept it, is to figure out how to create a system of values and educate within that system or for that system. Well, I think, you know, if we pretend that it's possible, I certainly agree with, you know, the platonic or Socratic position that you just have to chop everyone that's taller than a wagon wheel down you know, anyone over 10 years old or whatever is just exiled or killed and start from scratch because adults are fucked. Uh, it's just impossible to create the kind of transformation, not impossible, I shouldn't say impossible, but so nearly impossible, especially at scale, to create the kind of uh, transformation in value systems that we would need in order to uh, you know, form a, uh, a new community that would be life serving instead of life destroying, I think. And that, I mean, you know, I'm being slightly facetious, but not really. Uh, the, but that speaks to what you were saying about focusing on schools. And I mean, I agree with you there, certainly in terms of a practical effect on the world, one significant way to do it would be to create a school and perhaps ultimately a school system that would begin, you know, fertilizing and growing this type of community, or at least these types of citizens, so to speak. Um, do you remember the story of Charles Fourier? Uh, I don't, but I will when you start telling me. <laughs> so Charles Fourier was uh, a utopian socialist, right? Who had a vision of creating a bunch of communities, which he called uh, phalansteries or phalanxes. Oh uh, yeah. That would be uh, modeled around a, 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 a grand. I think he called it the Grand Hotel. And on the outskirts of the hotel, and there would be schools, and on the outskirts, uh, there would be small factories, and then on beyond those would be fields. So there'd be this intersection of, of farming and factory work, all built, built around his vision of, of uh, values and how life should be lived. And in the broad outline, it sounds pretty good, but when you get into the details, it's uh, lunacy. A lot of it's lunacy. I mean, he he believed in the zodiac as a way of of identifying types of people. Uh, he had strange ideas about about people who would mate with whom, um, what kind of accommodations you could afford in the grand hotel. 
there would be different classes of people in the hotel. It was it was bizarre, and so bizarre that at one point he said that the oceans would turn to lemonade. Uh, and it got pretty pretty crazy. I mention I'm only mentioning this not because I think you should follow suit and start. Hey, I like lemonade, <laughs> but lemonade is good. Uh, and you wouldn't have the problem if you were shipwrecked of not having something to drink. That's true. So he decided having laid out his, his grand scheme, uh, he would go to a cafe where he waited every day for his patron mm. to arrive, uh, who would have read his massive works and said, yeah, yes, this is the idea. That, my friend, is you. <laughs> yeah, I need a patron. You've been on the patron kick forever. You well, wanted a patron for a long time. Of course, who doesn't want a patron? With, You're with, still looking for a patron. No strings attached. Yeah. But this, but this is the idea, right? I mean, so just in the world of of um, of idealizing, right? You know, here's you create the vision of the school. Here's how it what would operate, and then what you would love to do is you 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 put that out there and you get reactions to it. People respond, this will work, this won't work. But at some point somebody says, this would be, uh, I want to spend my money on having you create this school. Right. On creating your vision. That would be great. That would be fantastic. Part of the issue is that the only way I could ever see it working is through deception, which I'm not opposed to. Why? <laughs> because at least, at least some, you know, partial deception because Anybody with enough money to fund this scheme would have to be a class trader. He or she would have to understand that he or she would be donating their money for a school that is, you know, for a, for a project that is aimed in significant part at, you know, eliminating them and their class. Well, <laughs> that that is a, a a danger yeah that's that's not uh necessarily a given right i mean in other words unless you are ruling out any social transformation that could leave a trace of let's say a, a form of capitalism mm. so as you know i don't know if you ever got through what hath trump wrought but as you I know, I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not wedded either to a socialist vision or a capitalist vision. I don't know that those ideologies are going to really be suitable for us moving forward, given the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Sure. Maybe it'll be a hybrid. Maybe it'll be something different from both of those. Anyway, my point about that was to say, if you leave open the possibility of, of transformation in ways that you yourself don't recognize. In other words, you see the mechanism for transformation. You want to introduce people to those processes and the means for achieving it without necessarily saying what, again, as we always come back to this phrase, what the, what the, uh, the soup kitchens, the future, the cook <laughs> right. shops of the future will look like. Right. You know, as Mark said, you're not laying out a blueprint for society. You're just making some suggestions. Okay, but you've got a mechanism whereby people are interested in transformation, both social and personal transformation. And the outcome of that is unknown. Right. You just know that th these are the ways that it can happen. Here are the values that I think are 
are important in any kind of transformation, social and personal, that are life enhancing and not life diminishing, um, but leaving open the possibility that, that there could be uh, results that you hadn't foreseen. Okay, <laughs> one of those might be, you say, I, I cannot, you say to the rich patron, I cannot say to you that my vision will result in X. I can only say to you that the vision takes you on a journey, tells you a story, shows you a, a scene of what things could look like, but things yeah. change. Uh, but you may find your angles. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. Engels was a, was a rich industrialist. That's what I'm said, saying. He was a class trader or, you know, he was a class trader. Uh, that's what I need. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. And people may say, I mean, there's a, there's a guy who has done a series of Ted talks. Nick, somebody terrible with names, terrible with most things that re require any kind of memory. Uh, who has done a series of touch. He's a, he's a ultra rich capitalist. Oh, I know who you're talking about. Nick Hanauer. Hanauer. Okay. Who, who basically says the system is fucked up. I'm yep. part of the fucked up system. And let me tell you, I know from the inside out how it's fucked up and why it is. And here, here's maybe what we can do about it. Right. So you, you need somebody like that. Now, is he a class trader? Uh, from, from some perspectives, he is clearly. Yeah. But from your perspective, he isn't. He's just a person who's, who's awakened. He, yes, his famous TED talk or TEDx talk, I can't remember which, was the pitchforks are coming. So he's he's not quite a class trader. He just recognizes that his own ass is on the line. Now, he does, to be fair to him, he does advocate for a living wage and many sort of um, yeah, taxing the rich. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like conventionally progressive kind of like FDR style shit which like by today's standards, he is a class trader, you know, compared. In fact, I think he made his, his big money by being an early investor in Amazon, if I recall correctly. Yeah. I, I don't know anything about his background, but I was just going to, you know, compare him to like the Bezoses of the world who, you know, by that, by that standard, Nick Hanauer is very much a, a class trader, but I don't see that he's quite on the level of somebody like Engels because, I've followed him a little bit and he's still, he seems to think that there can be like a conscious capitalism and things like this, which you may at least partially agree with. Cause as you were saying, you're not really wedded to any particular economic system. You're wedded to particular outcomes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I can foresee a kind of, so a kind of socialism and capitalism that could, uh, could coexist, even even interpenetrate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I don't know that. Uh, I I just can't believe there wouldn't be other people who, if okay. So that's not your perspective. Your perspective is, to use your phrase, more revolutionary than that, uh, and more dramatic than that. Than I, a mixed economy or a mixed yes a mixed yeah. economy yes so. For you, that if I'm not putting words in your mouth, the capitalist system has to be toppled. Yeah. Now this is a vision that that Engels shared, right? I mean, but remember, the vision he shared was a vision he adopted from Marx. I mean, he read Marx and says this guy's got the vision. So that's all. I'm, that's what I'm saying to you. you right. You start right. with a vision. Maybe you don't want to be Marx, 
you know, eating your clothes, eating your shoes, living in poverty in some rat hole in New York. <laughs> I already and, did that. <laughs> I'm he did be doing right. that again in three months. So. <laughs> he did that. Yeah. So maybe you need a different venue. You need a different eating your shoes somewhere else. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, so it, I keep coming back to this point and I know I'm just hammering it now. <laughs> the, maybe vision, the vision, the vision, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the vision and the message for, for getting people to see it. I know the story. Yes. I, I have been thinking more and more about that. I mean, uh, the, like sort of what I was saying before about my, one of my frustrations with, with XR was the lack of a T loss and a, a, just a, a like immovable fundamental opposition to even considering like in principle, a, a goal, you know, like a, a, a vision in this sense. What, what, well, tell me what, what was their sort of prime directive? Well, was it simply to disrupt? There were three, I mean, let's see if I can even remember them. I used to know them like the back of my hand because I was giving so many interviews, but there were originally three sort of key demands. The first was tell the truth, which was aimed primarily at governments and corporate media to demand that... Um, they actually speak forthrightly about the empirical reality of climate breakdown. So no more kind of like pretending like the Paris Accords are sufficient or this is an incremental process. We have a hundred years, whatever. Speak truthfully about the reality of the situation, including its history. Second demand was uh, reduced to net zero all carbon emissions by 2025. Okay, so that's a more material uh, uh, demand. And then the third demand was the creation of these citizens' assemblies, parallel institutions that were meant to essentially seize legislative power from state apparatuses and relocate that power in the hands of, as I said, uh, average people chosen by sortition like a jury uh, so that they could make decisions about how to implement, you know, the types of measures that would be needed, for example, to reduce carbon emissions to net zero by 2025. Um, and then also to proceed from there after sort of having solved that problem, assuming it's solvable, whatever was next was going to be in the hands of these citizens assemblies, which, you know, presumably would become a, a confederation, a global confederation of citizens assemblies but, but was there was that, what was that ever developed <laughs> any citizens assemblies no this this idea about the confederation of citizens assemblies not to my knowledge it was never really fleshed out and that's that's kind of the thing that i was getting at at my frustration in that was lacking because to me it was like you know for myself and i think this is another frustration that i had is that like the core sort of early adopters in XR were like, in, in my perception, all on the same page in terms of not, not like in lockstep per se, but much closer together politically and intellectually and all these types of things. XR almost, it did, I think, become a victim of its own success insofar as it was successful in that it grew rapidly, brought in 
majority of sort of milk toast liberals, you know, um, who did not share the same theory of change or understanding, a, a deep understanding of the predicament. So uh, as a result, the movement was like defanged. It, it kind of just became, as you said, performative. Um, and I think it just sort of lost its way as a result in, in terms of any sharp and perhaps even revolutionary political program. But like for me, it was so obvious that like the vision that they were pointing that XR point points to um, is essentially a green communism or, or Bookchin's post-scarcity anarchism where you have a deeply ecologically informed um, decentralized locally oriented uh, political economy that is rooted in deliberative democracy and that uh, sort of kind of uh, resolves many of these issues that were plaguing or holding back, I think, many of the less radical members of the group, right? So it wasn't, uh, people got fixated on sort of immediate problems that if they had understood the theory of change and the telos, th they would not have stumbled upon, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it's, you can conceive of this idea of community in, in many different ways. It could be a, a neighborhood in a city uh, it could be an entire city, a small town, could be an intentional community. Uh, there are all sorts of ways you can conceive of what these localized uh, centers, democratic centers would look like. What I find interesting, and I'm going to ask you whether this is the case, did anybody reach out to places like the Sortition Foundation did anybody, did anybody investigate and reach out to people in Ireland who actually have citizen assemblies? In fact, that's how the abortion ban was lifted in Ireland to the citizen yes. assemblies. That I think was a key example used actually in the founding documents for arguing for the creation of citizens assemblies. Okay. But did they, talk, did they talk to people in places where they actually have uh, participatory budgeting? That I don't the, know. I mean, I, this is, but this is the way you you create a movement, right? right. Where you, instead of instead, of, I was going to say pretending. <laughs> I don't mean to say that's too that's insulting, and, <laughs> but instead of leaving it to your imagination, where there are actually things going on around the globe yes. that tie in with what you're doing, like not just the participatory budgeting in Porto Alegre in Brazil, right. but in New York City. There's yeah. one of the one of the boroughs has participatory budgeting, um, but that it's happened. It, it's going on in this country. The same thing with sortition. The sortition foundation is looking around the world at who's doing what. Citizen assemblies in Scotland, I know, are are active. But you could begin to build something and see what would this look like, and then understand just what you were saying: the, the local, the necessary local flavor, that you can't impose the Irish version on 
Cleveland. You know, Cleveland is probably going to have its own. What would that look like? What do they want? What do the residents want? In other words, you have to talk to the, the denizens, right? The people who right. live there who are going to be living under this. You know, this is the great problem with top-down planning. How often do they talk to the people who are actually going to be using these facilities that people are talking about creating? You know, the highways they want to build that destroy communities or whatever it is they're, they're planning on putting in there. Anyway, yeah, I just want, just want to know if Extinction Rebellion was actually trying to, to create this vision and talk to people who are actually doing it, see how to do it, what it would look like, what needs to change. I think, I think that people were in various ways. And I mean, you know, many different uh, scholars and activists and even some politicians from different fields and different specialties were involved in the movement. I think it kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier about like a lack of leadership or central coordination to kind of say like, well, harnessing this expertise in a hierarchical fashion is not necessarily bad. Right. Right. And I think, you know, that it, it was hamstrung by that lack of coordination. And then also, you know, funding issues and crackdowns right. by the police or whatever. But also I think the, the morphing, as I was saying earlier, from a little nucleus that really got all this and was doing the best that we could, but were small in number relative to the enormous influx of people who were activated, you know, in part by Greta Thunberg, um, you know, her protests. And like, it just became another sort of like, oh, let's put on our pussy hat and go march in the street, you know, like the women's march type thing. Like that was great as far as it went, but it, it was performative as well. And Hedges calls this like boutique, boutique liberalism or something. Like he's, he's extremely disdainful of this kind of stuff. And he was hoping that Extinction Rebellion, much as I was hoping, would not succumb to this. But I think that it did. And uh, how, so how would you have avoided that? That's a lesson I'm still trying to learn, I guess. And it's, I think, I don't know, honestly. I think, um, I think one of the issues, one of the key issues was what I was saying, like the unwillingness to embrace clear and even at times hierarchical leadership aimed at uh, a particular goal or outcome. But I think at the same time that it's like almost, I want to say chicken and the egg, but that's not quite the right phrase. It's like, I think what allowed XR to grow was its lack of those things. Because I think of things like the fucking Trotskyists, for example, who still exist out there in the world and in the United States. And they, it's this tiny little group where they basically spend all their time arguing with each other about what Trotsky would do and how they know better than some other asshole what <laughs> Trotsky would do today, right? And it's all fixated on trade unionism and stuff. I interacted with these guys in New York a little bit and because I, I thought about joining up with them and I was like, fuck this shit. But um, 
you know, like the idea that we're going to see a revolution through trade unionism in the United States when union membership is like 6% in this country. It's just not going to happen. You can be informed by Trotsky and that tradition, but you have to create and cultivate something new, which speaks to your question of like, how would you accomplish this? And the simple answer is I have no clue. And in fact, I don't think it's possible, probably. But um, if it were to be accomplished, I think it has to be something that is in some very significant sense unprecedented. So some crazy thought that was circulating in my head earlier when you brought up Fourier reminded me of another obscure writer, I think from the same class uh, when I was TAing for you, Bellamy, right? And is looking right. backward. Right. So for listeners, this is Edward Bellamy, I believe, who was the brother of, was he brother of Francis Bellamy, who created the Pledge of Allegiance, who was also so socialist? I can't remember. But at any rate, Edward, Ed, anyway, Edward Bellamy wrote this book over 100 years ago now, where it was basically some guy had a Rip Van Winkle situation, wakes up 100 years later, and the whole world has changed. And now there's something like a very utopian um, sort of planned economy, I guess we could say, where people just go to a depot and, and get their basic needs met. Is that, it's been a while since I've read it. Is that, is that the gist? Am I right? Yeah, it's a, it's a little more elaborate than that. They, sure, they, yeah, I'm trying they, to keep it simple. Yeah, so imagine that there are, this won't be hard to imagine, <laughs> There are every 20 miles a brick and mortar Amazon where you can get not just your basic necessities, but shop for anything you need. Uh, you know, a massive department store. Right. And uh, you're right, it's, it's, it's centrally planned, centrally controlled economy uh, where there is individual choice in how you live, what you spend your money on. Uh, but yes, yeah, so, but you're, you, you are, yeah. So, the, so life is, is laid out and planned out for you. Uh, and he, he, he was very influential, right? So this is not just a utopian novel, right? which it there, was. There were like there, societies, right? There that were sprung Bellamy up. clubs. Yeah, yeah. Bellamy clubs around who talked about how this could be implemented, what, what could be done about that. But uh, that, I don't know what that amounted to, um, but again, it's a vision. He had a vision, and if you read looking backward, it's, as I say, it's much more elaborate than than we're going into here. Yeah. About, but people received credit cards, um, and they all received the same amount of money, and you could spend it however you wanted. You could have an elaborate house or a simple house. Uh, I can't remember if you could give it back to the state. Maybe you could, but there was some, you know, you worked for 20 years. You were based upon your skills. You enlisted in certain kinds of work, the industrial army versus some other things. Every, everybody worked in some capacity, men and women. Hmm. It's pretty interesting. Anyway, sorry. I Yeah, no, that's, there. I wanted you to flesh it out a little bit because I couldn't remember it quite as well as I knew you would. Um, but... I'm also glad because you walked right into my trap 
which was <laughs> I the reason that I brought that up was exactly sort of what I think you were alluding to, which is that Amazon could Amazon sort of has put this infrastructure into place. In other words, you can imagine an alternative world where what Amazon does is administered very differently through democratic popular control, distribution of resources in an extraordinarily efficient and speedy manner. Um, and I, so I, I was bringing this up because I was saying something kind of unprecedented would need to occur for a revolution of this t of the type we've been talking about to happen at this point in the United States. And I was thinking, what if there was a, an, a genuine seizure of Amazon, a seizure of that infrastructure and that apparatus that has been built up, all the distribution centers, all the uh, supply chain management and logistics behind that. You can, at least I can imagine a takeover of that entity in order to reallocate resources to people uh, in, this, in this country and around the world. It doesn't map on perfectly, but I think, I mean, maybe you can see where I'm going with this. What do you, what do you think of that? Like you think of how Amazon workers are so immiserated in those warehouses. What if they all, now we just saw that the unionization vote in Alabama failed in large part because of Amazon's illegal and manipulative, uh, you know, labor law violations. But if there were some kind of spontaneous seizure, spontaneous, simultaneous seizure of Amazon warehouses by the employees in service of, you know, uh, nationalizing basically that company, I think that could be uh, sort of a germ, revolutionary germ. What do you think? And the point of it would be to redistribute goods to people in need? Well, yeah, ideally. I think, it, I mean, right now it's used by people to order bullshit a lot of the time, right? People buy using money they don't have to buy shit they don't need. But uh, the actual like infrastructure of it could be utilized in a manner similar to what Bellamy proposes in Looking Backward, I think. I don't know how that would work. My, my, my first thought was that Bezos would get his minions to sabotage. He would rather have everything destroyed than have it taken over. Sure. Not unlike the farmers in the Soviet Union who when ordered to sell their cows to the state would rather kill them, kill the cows than have the state get them. He might very well do something like that. I, I don't know because uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But um, I mean, you, yes, if somehow it could be done, you're, I think you're suggesting that the apparatus exists the infrastructure exists for the kind of distribution that would be helpful to people in need if if the right people were in control yes and because the right people I... the right people would be localized deliberative com communities who were deciding on how to distribute according to what people need 
Yes. And I, and part of where this was coming from was because I was thinking about um, sort of the Marxian notion that each successive stage of social organization contains within it the seeds of its own destruction, which are the seeds for the next system of social organization, right? So his argument, as I recall, is basically that when material conditions and especially technological advancements arise within the existing system that sort of create the possibility for and almost rise above the that sort of ossified system of social relations, then inevitably it's going to burst through and there's going to be a revolutionary transformation of social relationships in order to more sort of accurately map onto material conditions. And I, and I think when we we're talking earlier about like the internet communications and now uh, the internet is applied to, you know, the distribution of material goods and services to say nothing of automation. I think we're approaching a place where those conditions hold or are beginning to hold. Like, I think you and I have talked at different times about automation in trucking, for example. Trucking is like the most popular, you know, the most, the uh, highest volume of jobs in every state in the country, except for Hawaii, I think. Well, when those vehicles are automated, as it seems they will soon be, what will those people do? That's sort of an ancillary example of a material condition that is rapidly changing and supports, I think, the possibility for the kind of transformation that I'm suggesting. I agree with that. It creates the possibility for the kind of transformation you were suggesting, but the possibility isn't going to be enough. No. <laughs> so the problem with the truckers is that uh, when they're out of work, well, the, what, what, what the responsible and I think smart, I shouldn't say responsible, what the smart thing I think the capitalist should do is immediately introduce the universal basic income. Right. If they want to save themselves and they want to save the system. Because what the truckers are going to want is to make sure that they can feed their themselves and their families, that they aren't going to be evicted uh, when they're out of work. Now, the, the other problem is, can they then find additional work and can they find work that's satisfying? Uh, yes to the first and probably no to the second. Um, but let's say that the capitalists decide they're not going to do that. The corporate... The, the political corporate system says, well, no, we're not introducing the UBI. We're not going to do that. That would be expensive. Then the concern is that, that workers would simply say, would, now we're back to the beginning of our conversation, <laughs> would take to the streets because they want food. They want shelter. They want some kind of security, which apparently they can only get through themselves. Lost completely in that 
is the revolutionary purpose that Marx said was, was crucial to the revolution. And his, from my perspective, the last place that he thought there would be a revolution would be in Russia because it was predominantly a peasant society, you know, 90% peasants and 10% uh, industrialized, some of the largest factories in the world, but very few of them. Right. Because people couldn't develop the proletarian, they couldn't step out of the proletarian consciousness. They couldn't see that the very, the very family they idolized, the czars, were in fact the cause of their oppression. <laughs> right. Right. They thought the czars were going to come and save them, which is the exact opposite of what you would need. So the revolutionary consciousness was lost. And so the result is, as Marx completely predicted, you just have you have the same structures of power with different faces in the in the positions of power. Right. This is my concern about what would happen if the truckers uh, were suddenly out of work without any ability to understand why this occurred and what it portends, they're not going to be interested in overthrowing Bezos. They just want the stuff. <laughs> you know, we, we just want that stuff. How can we get it? Well, we can, we can raid his store. That's, that's what it would be about. Mm. But you're talking about how do we, how do we topple the Bezos system? Yes. I so, don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, that makes total sense. And I agree. It's like it, in the absence of an under understanding of the situation, uh, there's not going to be any kind of like programmatic change, right? They're not going right. to, they might, they might loot Bezos and take all his wealth, but they're not doing it for the right reasons, so right. to speak, or with the right goals in mind. And, you know, I guess thinking about false consciousness, as you mentioned earlier, and like sort of the connection you were saying, how the peasants believed that the SARS would save them when in fact it was the SARS who were fucking them over in the first place and had no intention of saving them ever. Um, and like what that process, it would be something like a dark night of the soul for someone who genuinely believed that to go through and come out on the other side and think that this, you know, who was it? Nicholas the second or whatever, uh, this great hero was actually the great enemy. And I wonder, you know, it's not, it's not a one-to-one -one analogous situation, but something like the pandemic perhaps has stripped people of some of their unexamined beliefs or maybe more accurately forced them to examine some of their unexamined beliefs in a way that I think has not been fully appreciated that is going to, and I think already is leading to really drastic shifts in the way that average people conceptualize this society. Like I just saw, um, there was a piece, I think, in the Washington Post talking about the supposed uh, labor shortage, right, that's happening right now. People don't want to go back to work at restaurants for starvation wages in a pandemic, right, or whatever it might be. 
And the author was saying, no, this is not a labor shortage. It's a reassessment and a, a reevaluation of what work means or should mean in the United States. And that's kind of what I'm getting at is like, I think the pandemic, uh, you know, let certain cats out of the bag that can't be put back in, so to speak. And maybe some of those in aggregate or with the right leadership or with the right turn of events or whatever, I think perhaps people could be marshaled in a new direction. In other words, I think, I think those material conditions I was talking about are, like I said, really starting to hold. It just, they just need the right galvanizing trigger, I think, to snap into place. I don't know if you buy they, that. They need the right story. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, look, look, look I, I am not nearly as sanguine about this as you are, which is surprising because <laughs> you are, you know, Dr. Doom. Yeah. So, but well, I it, like to pretend. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let me go with your pretense. Um, there's another side of this pandemic. If you take, this is hard to believe, a charismatic figure who tells a compelling story, hmm. then you end up with a third, and I'm being very conservative here, a third of the people who think that the pandemics was a hoax, right. that right. vaccines don't work, that they right. do more harm than good. Did you see the story now where anti-maskers want to wear masks to protect themselves from vaccinated people? This is now a thing. Well, that actually has a good outcome for the really <laughs> stupid reason. I agree. But, I agree. But it's like they think that vaccinated people will shed the virus. Yeah. Right. And, and thus infect them. Uh, but this is the power of story. You have Trump who... There, I don't see an ounce of charisma in the guy. And he is, and this is, but this is the power of story. Right. He is the opposite of everything these people think. He is not self-made. He's not smart. He's not as rich as he says. Uh, he wears makeup. Uh, he processes his hair. He's the, he is not the man's man in any way. No. He's a clown but, and a fraud. And but a he man. sold himself through the story. Yeah. And now we've got an entire major party paying obeisance to this guy and his lie. Right. Liz and Cheney you, was just ousted. Right. Yeah, from, if, yeah. If you don't buy the lie, who, by the way, is now apparently uh, reaching sainthood, which is preposterous because I know. if you want an example of frankenstein's monster yep. it is dr frankenstein is liz and dick cheney the perpetuation of the lie that there were weapons of mass destruction the perpetuation of the lie that waterboarding is not torture which liz cheney continues to hold to to this day leads to 
the effectiveness of lying to people and brought us Trump. For sure. They're the who, founders who, of pro-truth or uh, post-truth. Post-truth. Right? Who, who, following the story, the monster has turned on the creator. And yes. now Liz Cheney has been ousted from leadership. Couldn't happen to a better person. Yeah. So she, so sainthood is, should not be her destination. No, anyway, should not be in the cards for her. What I was going to say again is that it's this power of story. So you'd have to think about what, what you would say to workers that would get them to do more than loot the store. Right. There's got to be more than that. Uh, you need a countervailing story. I keep coming back to this, I know, but it, but it's just we have the evidence in Trump yes. who is is incapable of, of ever admitting an error and therefore of ever making an error. And he has completely turned this party inside out or upside down. I mean, yes. yeah, they had they've always had, I think, horrific policies and programs. But now none of that matters. None of that matters at all. Now it's just the perpetuation of the lie. But this, this is this is what we're 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 up against. How do you seize a a moment like the collapse of our system under a pandemic, the ongoing problems with climate change, nuclear weapons, and the rest of it? A capitalist system that is now even further and further dividing the well-to-do from everybody else. What's the story you tell that gets people to wake up? We know one story which got them to wake up, which is the, the Trumpian story that this, everything was stolen, that the elites have destroyed the America and Democrats are satanic. That's a story that, that has resonated. Now, is it possible to find a countervailing narrative? I don't know. But that's yeah. what you need, right? I mean, that's what you need. That's what Mark Marx was telling us. You, people have got to wake up to, to be able to recognize the roots of their own oppression. It's coming out of the system. It isn't coming from Bezos. Bezos is just a symptom, right? right? It, it isn't coming from Bill Gates, right? It isn't, it isn't coming from Exxon. Right? Th this is just, these are just symptoms of the system that is a problem. And if you don't have that systemic change i don't know what happens what, what but what's the narrative you tell what what you know that's the that's the problem i wish i knew i mean i completely agree with you about the importance and the power of narrative and i uh it reminds me of that uh what the hell's his name ananda kumaraswamy right quote kumaraswamy yeah yeah uh myth is the nearest approximation of truth that can be put into words right and uh of universal truth, I think he says, that can be put into words. And so, yeah, like the story and especially something like a mythic or mythological story is action guiding, it's um, community forming, it's reality simplifying, right? I mean, it's other things too, I'm sure, but those are the three big ones that come to mind. And certainly we've seen yeah. those under the mythological story of Donald Trump, right? Yeah. But, that, but you know, there's so many, I wish we had, well, we can talk about it in the next encounter because we're running low, but we can still talk for a few more minutes. But this topic is so fruitful, I think, because 
So one thing that comes to mind, for example, is like if we're coming, if we're trying to come up with a counter narrative, I don't know that I wonder, I guess I should say, if it can be done in a in a unitary form. And what I mean by that is something about Trump's story, including that it's about him, per, you know, personally as an individual, as a kind of a great man, as a as an abusive father figure. Um that hits a certain type of person in a certain type of way. It's an authoritarian personality that attracts to it other authoritarian personalities, maybe we could say, like a moth well, to a flame. Yes, and, and even stronger than that, this is an authoritarian personality who can present himself as a populist. Right. Who can tell part of the story in the idioms that people want to hear and believe about how he's going to, in a simple version, bring back coal, right? right. How he's going to protect your social security and the wars, <laughs> how he's going to end the wars, which he did try to do. Actually, Biden's plan with Afghanistan is basically he inherited from Trump. Yeah. I, I mean, I hate Trump, you know, but that it's true. Yeah. I mean, that's it, right. You can't, you, you, you can't uh, discount everything Trump did. I'd have to think about some of the things he did that might have been good, but that may be one. Very of few. <laughs> but but the, 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 this shows you the power of the story, the power of the of the myth that the that he can sell this guy who has nothing in common with any member of the working class can and present most certainly resents savior. them resents them yeah would never hang out with them in a million years no would not be would not be hanging out with these people yeah who resents them and yeah loathes them I, I would go so far as to say and yet the story sells because you're right it it resonates in, a, in an important way they're right. hearing something that they want to hear they i don't know that they care i mean they they trump is is such an entertaining figure in and all that he does that they they are sort of mesmerized by it and roused by it yes. right? because he, he finds the enemies. He is one of the prime enemies, right? He is the very thing that, that he is, is, is talking against. Of course. Right? He's a fucking plutocrat who has played both parties to his advantage yeah. and he, he stiffs yeah. his workers, you know, on and on and on. Like he, yeah, he's their enemy, yeah. but he has been able to sell it sell himself as the savior because the he can point to the real enemies the scapegoats the minorities who are who are surging across the border the black and brown people who are takers not givers who are destroying the country yeah the welfare uh, queens quote, yeah, quote. The, the black lives matter movement which is destroying america which black lives matter is is really shorthand for looting and right. and destruction so he's been able to sell this because he can turn the attention away from your plight to why it's occurring it has nothing to do with you it has everything to do with these people out there right uh it's a powerful story because mm. i think you're right it's rooted in myth about about the the savior who comes uh the the hero who who comes to win the day the savior who will who will bring us out of our misery and make america great again right so and the count the counter narrative has got to be, I think it's got to start with what we share, the common ground we share as humans on the planet. 
Uh, I don't know that people, when it gets hot and people are thirsty and the crops have been ruined, they go, wow, maybe there is global warming until winter comes and there's a lot of rain and it gets cold and they go, oh, no, that's, that's not happening. <laughs> right. It's that it, it's the inability to think long-term. So maybe the, the collapse of the planet isn't part of the, is, isn't the central part of the narrative. Well, what is? It's gotta be something about what we all want for ourselves and our friends and family something about that, about human flourishing, what we all, all, all require, what we all require, and how that can be done by uniting uh, in some endeavor. There's got to be something there. Mm -hmm. If I knew what the story was, I would write it and I would be, you know, making a lot of money. Uh, yeah. Or at least it would be etched into stone tablets, right? But, etched in a stone yeah i'd be like i'd be having crittenden clubs all over the place like the bellamy clubs i yeah several things come to mind i think not only does it need to include a vision of flourishing like you were saying but either through that vision or in addition to it it also needs to be about you said like what we need or what we want or whatever but also like who we are or who we want to be like identity formation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, of course you've written about this, like, you know, cosmopolitan identity and these types of things like that is I think crucial because that's the move that needs to be made. And what I sort of, what I was getting at earlier, where I, I like part of the challenge that I would see in crafting such a narrative is like, I don't know that it can hit Trump cultists, for example, and, you know, let's just say your average liberal at the same time in the same way with the same story, right? So like these, if we want to think in sort of like Will Berry in terms, right? Like they're at different stages of development psychologically and otherwise, and emotionally for sure. And the kind of story that might motivate, inspire, et cetera, someone at that higher more enlightened level of development would actually be like anathema and, and off-putting to somebody at a lower level, right? Uh, or it could, it could be like, that's just a challenge that I could see. Like, yeah, that's a you... challenge. I, yeah. I don't think that's right. I don't, I don't think it, ha well, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. That somebody at a lower level of development is necessarily un, uh, unable to grasp, unable to see the, the rungs needed to grab onto to climb higher. Right. Uh, nor does the person at the higher level necessarily have to look down at the person at the lower level because the person at the higher level went through that level. So it right. should have an, some appreciation of what that person went through. I, I think it can be done that it would appeal. Maybe the Trump cult is lost, as you said, or suggested. Right. Um, but I think it's possible to create this idea. Uh, but again, I, th I think it, it has to be in the language that we all, we all understand because we've all been through these levels, right? These levels of development. So it has to, it has to, it has to involve uh, respect uh, 
it has to involve concern. So we want to see that others are concerned about our lives and we need to be concerned about theirs, but there can't be a loss of respect and dignity in that. So uh, I, 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 think, I think it can be done. I think it's delicate, but I think it can be done. I'm, I'm thinking about an article I wrote in response to a student encounter I had in the spring. The student is, is a self-described libertarian and the students, I was invited to participate. So I wasn't uh, the ringleader of this. The students were discussing um, worker ownership and worker control of workplaces. And this libertarian was saying, look, if I started a business, why do I want to surrender my authority, my power, my control over to the workers? I'm the one who did all the work in building this company. So I did not at the time have a good answer. I didn't think I had some response. He wasn't directing it at me. This was an ongoing conversation among the participants, and I was simply one of them. Uh, but I wrote an article as, I think, a better response. And the, art, the title of the article was When Money Trumps Morality. And I think if you couch the argument in moral terms, people understand it and people can see the value in it. The great obstacle is the central value in this culture and others around the world on money, that that becomes the goal. And so anyone who messes around with the possibility that I could become as rich as Trump, which as we know is not that rich, uh, anyone who messes around with that is interfering with my well-being. So that's what's got to be countered. And I think it can be. But again, I think it's, it's delicate and a, even somewhat precarious. But I think it can be done and has to be done. Yeah, I think it could be done and yeah, should and be done. I think it can be done. Essentially, you know, what well, we're saying. <laughs> this is why we're looking to you. Yeah, well, you're fucked. <laughs> but uh no, I mean, you know, this is obviously something that I'm concerned about. And, you know, it's, it'd be great if I or anyone could, could accomplish something like this. But um, essentially, it's like, you know, an example would be the stories of various um, influential religious figures, right? That's almost what we're suggesting is a story uh that would lead to the founding of a new religion. Now, it, it wouldn't be a conventional, uh, a religion at the level of conventional morality, but of course, neither was Jesus, right? As you have shown uh, in white, in your book, Stalking White Crows, right? You talk about the post-conventionality, post-conventional morality of Jesus. And I think all the, you know, Buddha and others, um, exemplify some of the highest levels of moral development that uh, in human history. And yet, at the same time, while there's some small number of adherents who, you know, rise perhaps to that same level or a similar level, the, 
the majority of say Christians, certainly in this country where evangelical Christianity predominates are not only nowhere near Christ's level of moral development, but in fact, I mean, if the, if Christ came back today, they would definitely be the ones to kill him. Right. Like they, it's, it's a, it's a, religious sect that is founded or rooted in hypocrisy. They misunderstand or reject the teachings of the supposed, of their supposed leader, moral, spiritual leader. So that's another obstacle that I see is like, even if you get it right, even if you get the story right, even if you get the biography uh, and behaviors and actions of this type of figure, right. Uh, it's still probably not going to work. Yeah. It's, that's a de depressing rendering. Well, I'm just saying like Christianity has no, no, been around right, but... for 2000 years and we're not much closer to, you know, Christic consciousness as the norm. No, certainly not as the norm. Uh, but you're you're right. It's almost as if every religious founder has had his vision, and they're all men at this point, has had his vision betrayed. Yeah. Because it seems to me, again, it's almost as if any time you create rituals and structures and texts, and a hierarchical class of people who are in charge of controlling those structures and rituals and texts, you've abandoned <laughs> the vision. Yeah. Because all of them come out of, out of, of experience. They're experiential for Christ and Buddha and Lao Tzu, Chuang Tzu, Socrates. Yes. Uh, they, they all come out of a personal vision, and that's lost because the, the instruction is this can also be yours. And so there are movements within every religion that attempt to introduce the mystical strand, whether it's the Sufis in Islam or uh, the Kabbalah in Judaism the centering prayer, prayer of the heart in Christianity and the whole Buddhist tradition of meditation. I mean, you can look at every, every single religion like that and, and find the, the mystical part, but that is, if not rooted out because it's a form of heresy is at least downplayed within the religion. Right. Which right. is the very, but that could be the very part of the vision that you need to build on. Right. So if we were thinking about this, as you were saying, it's this sort of a new religion, you're thinking about it, with a focus on, on mysticism and a downplaying, if not elimination of the texts. Again, you know what it comes to? It comes to um, something I talked about in, in White Crows, where I talked about the movement that began in England called the Sunday Assemblies. Mm -hmm. These are uh, atheistic, at least agnostic, but I'm going to say atheistic movements of people who just gather together to sing because singing is wonderful to dance because dancing is wonderful to chant because chanting is wonderful and can be transformative 
and who maybe, I don't know if they meditate, I don't know if they do that, but the whole point of it is just to gather as a community and share in the, the joy of being together. It's called the Sunday Assemblies. It's started by actually two stand-up comedians, I think, in England. But, but that you can imagine a, a, a congregation that was self-determining, self-directing, uh, self-governing, where the experiential part was an essential part, if not the essential part of the gathering. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you could follow whatever path you wanted, provided it was experiential. And that could even in- involve drugs like the Native American church. Right with yeah, peyote back to psychedelic school. Yeah, but could, it could even yeah. So it could involve that, but it would be something where the congregation would be in control. Mm. So your congregation might look very different from mine. Yours in Sedona could look very different from mine in Scottsdale. Um, but we, but what connects us is the structure of it, sort of the outline of it, and that's where I was headed with this idea about the commonality of, uh, that we share as human beings trying to live on it on a dying planet Mm. what is it that we need well part of it is we need community we need joy we need experience to get us uh to live enlivened uplifted lives maybe even transformative lives that wouldn't have to be part of it i mean you wouldn't have to say to a factory worker necessarily you know do this because you're you're going to move through the levels of development and you're going to reach no you say look it'll make you feel better we get right. together, we do the things that are important to us, we share as a community. I don't know. Now I'm rambling. Now I'm <laughs> rambling and must no. mean time to end. Yeah, it's about that time. But I, I want to just address a, a few points of what you said. Like the so I, I'm I'm on board with you about like the agnostic community activities, so to speak. And especially the like the um, reimagining of what have been traditionally the purview of organized religion you know like singing in unison as a as a choir or whatever right stuff like that because there's no other um certainly in like contemporary atomized america there's no other arena for many of those types of activities the only place you can go dance is a nightclub you know you got to get wasted and do and listen to horrible music <laughs> that's or, or whatever you know there are very yeah. few venues for these types of activities to be healthful, healthy and life-serving. But that doesn't touch the issue of what we were saying before of the story um, and a unifying story or stories. And, you know, what you were... I think it can, I think it can but... Go, oh, go it, I mean, it probably can. I'm just saying this, like the partial tip of the iceberg, basically, that you were laying out there leaves out the story element for now but um and i mean story not from the point of view of those people's lived experiences but a narrative that is mythic and you know fictitious that's about somebody else uh or some others to help guide them but i was just thinking like you were talking about mysticism and things across all religions and it's almost like that the the that esoteric core that unites all religions right at their base the the problem has always been making that exoteric right 
it's like the esoteric core by its very nature is going to be insular, limited, um, fragile, whatever. And therefore the, what manifests is institutions, certainly in Christianity that only touch the exoteric elements and that essentially undermine the esoteric ones through things like, uh, you know, strict hierarchical obedience um, to the clergy or whatever. So like D, I, I'm just kind of thinking out loud and the idea of like trying to create a future religion or a religion for the present and the future is like to deconstruct that. And I don't know how you would do it, but to, to make mysticism no longer esoteric and instead that's exoteric. You, okay. I, well, Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, you fashioned the story following from the stories of religious founders. So I'm suggesting the opposite. I'm suggesting that there isn't a person, there is a path. You're on the path. You're creating your own myth. Mm. That's that's the selling point. Yes. Not this is the story of Jack or this is the story of Rory who went on the on the journey and reached enlightenment and has brought the message back to us. No, we're you are on the path, right? It's the I'm, path that's important. I'm with you there. And that, that's so what it that's has the, to be. It has to yeah, be the democratization of the path, yes, basically. Right. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. The path is available to anybody and it will have different forms. Um, there are ways that, I mean, there, then there are little, little packets of this where I can see ways of pulling in people that's for, for a different time. We're getting, <laughs> we're getting distracted. But my point is that, yes, eliminate the, the central character whom we deify and uh, and place in amber this person's story, right? Yes. No, it's the it's the path we're, that we're all capable of it, and we can attain heights. And but the more important point is that as you walk the path, you are reinforced in your your flourishing. Yes, and but but it's the path. I think, yeah. oh, did you have something you wanted to add? No. I just wanted to make, a, I guess, a final comment to that point is I think that's exactly, or not necessarily exactly, but a major impulse of Nietzsche's in writing Zarathustra was addressing some of the concerns that you just laid out. So I think about in Zarathustra, that important passage where he says, leave me. <laughs> deny me only once you've denied me can you return to me Le he, i bid you leave yourself leave me and find yourselves he says and only once you've denied me can you return to me like that's what he's saying don't venerate me i'm not special i'm not i'm not christ or whatever you can all do this which may be one reason why he subtitles zarathustra a book for all and none but this is a very inchoate thought that I have, but I, but I think, I think that that could be a stepping stone using some insights from Zarathustra. Yeah. 
I, I would just issue one warning. Sure. Which is that the, the developers of the path, the people, let's say like you and me, who lay out this idea of the path that, you know, this is no different from the hero's journey, right? Right. But people are looking for the hero. You are the hero of your story. Right. right? Get on the fucking path and begin walking that that's the story but whoever lays out the path and its stages and all of that will be i don't want to say will be tempted that isn't that isn't right will be sub subject to being deified sure people want to externalize it it's so much easier to to worship the person who has already done it so that I don't have to do it. Yes. yes I will pay right. homage to this great person who did this great thing, recognizing that there's this great thing to do, but I don't have to do that. No, here you have to completely avoid that. So it wouldn't be the Zarathustra saying, yes, come to me now, leave me now, renounce me. There's no coming to me. Mm. It's, you know, <laughs> get on the path to the cave. That's the way what's in the cave. Well, go see, right. go look. Although I, I agree with you, but I guess maybe instrumentally, it's like, uh, just like with the metamorphoses that he lays out at the beginning, it's like, there is a process. And even though, and it's like, you can't skip, you have to meet people where they are. And maybe they need for a while to have a hero uh, to prepare them for the hero telling them to fuck off. <laughs> you know, well, I don't yeah, know, arguably. The hope would be they find the hero within the congregation who would simply be another member just like them and constantly telling them to walk the path. Right. So skip that, basically. Let's accelerate the process. Rock we don't need heroes path, at all. Rory. <laughs> yes. And we, what, what does he say at the end? Then we will do well, be good and do well. We would, yes. Okay. Be good and do well. Yes. What more can you be ask good me? and do good? <laughs> okay, till next time.
Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>